0: Hello everyone and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Thank you for listening today. On today's podcast, we're bringing you fixed income portfolio manager Jeff Moore's appearance at Fidelity Canada's Vision 2023 event held recently in Toronto. Jeff joined Fidelity in 1995 and has been managing portfolios since 2000. And for Canadian investors, he manages a number of strategies, including Fidelity Tactical Credit Fund, Multi-Sector Bond Fund, Investment Grade Total Bond, Global Core Plus Bond ETF, and North Star Balanced, among many others. Jeff sits down with host Kelly Creelman, SVP Products and Marketing, to share his thoughts on the challenging fixed-income environment we saw the past couple of years and how he's positioning for 2023 and beyond. This includes looking at what's next from the U.S. Federal Reserve and other central banks, how investors could approach investing in uncertain times, and how Jeff and his colleagues stress test their portfolios. This podcast was recorded on January 31st, 2023. And as mentioned, this interview was recorded during the Vision 2023 event, and you'll hear a reference or two to slides being displayed to the room. Also, for more podcasts from the day's sessions, please subscribe as they'll be released in the coming days. Or for full video replays of the event, advisors should reach out to their Fidelity rep and investors should head to fidelity.ca slash the upside and sign up for the upside newsletter. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Good morning. (sighs) So no pressure, Jeff.
0: Oh, there's no pressure it's at gotta
1: all. It's
2: to be fun. Can, the it's caffeine. the bond market. It's I like know. It's obviously fun.
1: Now, actually, that's a good segue because we've come off two really tough years in the bond markets, two negative years. But I think it's fair to say I've never seen you more excited about a year. So talk to us about 2023.
2: Yeah. So you know what's really interesting? If you look at 2022, tough year, like Kel said. If you go back to 2022, and if you bought multi-sector, my bond fund, at the dead wrong time. And rates just went up. and They went up more than I thought they would, but whatever. If you follow it around to today, you know you're only down 6% in the greatest sell-off in history. That's what makes the bond market great. Because all they are is loans, a bunch of loans. And they're all worth part at the end as long as they pay, right? So don't get caught worrying so much about interest rates, this and that. And all this. It's the bond market. Stock stuff that's hot, like Andrew's there, holy mackerel, that's not the bond market. All we're doing is making loans, and we want our money back for you, and we want to compound as fast as we can, okay? So I like your setup for 2023.
1: Great. Now, I think uh, on everyone's mind right now is inflation, obviously, and you talk about inflation like ski slopes, so maybe uh, talk to us about that.
2: Right. So our take, Merrimack, is that we've hit peak inflation sort of in November. And so now the question for all of us is, What is the path down for inflation? Are we on the green run or are we on like the double diamond? Holy cow, this is scary run. So it depends, right? And so when you think about inflation paths, I have a, a great team of people supporting me. That's why I can be here. And they're all the geniuses behind the scene. And Aditi, one of the things she says to me is if you look at U.S. inflation for 2023 and you make just two decisions, what's owner's equivalent rent going to be? And so think about this. Owner's equivalent rent is 25% of CPI basket, okay, 25. And the way it's calculated is they actually smooth it, a six, to six, to six, to six. six. So it, by definition, becomes a lagging indicator, right? Because they smoothed it. And so what Aditi says is, if you think owner's equivalent rent is growing at 5% for the year, we're on the green or blue runs. It's inflation still going down, but, you know, not going down that fast, and the Fed's going to have to stay at a higher level for, for a while. They may not have to raise rates, but they stay where they are for a while. And that's a, probably a bond market that's nice single digit returns, positive returns, but still a good place. But then Aditi says, if you make just one change, if you assume that ownership equipment rent is 1%, so we assume that housing prices go up 1% this year, right? One, so still positive. We can all maybe argue that they should be going negative. If it's 1%, then all of a sudden, your base case is disinflation in the U.S. in June. It's not long. If it's it's disinflation in June, the bond market will rally like you read about, okay? So don't sit on your hands here. It's like the time's now, 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 if you think we're on a 1% OER. Because think about this, goods prices have already rolled over, wages, question marks, Andrew did a nice job talking about unemployment. If unemployment starts picking up and it's a lagging indicator, you can imagine that'll roll over a little bit too. then commodity prices, well, you know, if Russia invades somebody again, or there's bad people doing bad things, commodity prices can do that. But think about this: that if we 're on the ski slope here and its owner's equipment rent is a one percenter, you're now backing into a base case for yourself of really low inflation, not and potentially disinflation.
1: Great. Now, tomorrow's a big day, Fed announcement. Maybe talk to us about what you think's going to happen.
2: Yeah, it's going to be a non-event for you tomorrow. He's going to say, we're going to raise 25, and then he's going to talk trash to the market because he doesn't want anything rallying yet. But you, And all you should be doing for data is checking in with CPI every month. It's like tagging up in baseball now. You have to tag up with CPI. Make sure the CPI is on the track, and you're trying to decide not if it's going down. You're looking at CPI, and you're trying to decide, are we on the green run, blue run? black run. That's all you're trying to decide. And if you think we're on the black run, you want more bonds. And if you think we're on the green run, yeah, you can do what you like. It's just, you know, We're going to go sideways. We're going to have our percent and a half for, or, or, uh, of income a quarter for you. That's the kind of decision you have.
1: And a lot of people ask, have the Fed mismanaged this all? What's your opinion on that? You
2: know, so in, in the history books of time, I think the Fed, the Bank of Canada, um, central banks around the world, they did a great job taking rates to zero during COVID. Doing QE even during COVID, and I'll even give governments credit that during the first fiscal stimulus during COVID was a good idea because we had so much uncertainty. None of us knew if we could work from home. We wanted toilet paper. You know, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. I would argue, though, and we actually did say this way back when, that by September of 2020 we should have raised interest rates because there was no crisis and there was still. COVID was still upon us, but it wasn't an economic crisis. It was just a social. And, and so the, the central bank should have been raising money in, in 2020. They got around to it in the end of 2021.
1: And how much higher do you think rates can go from here?
2: Well, so here's the, the thought process. So I always like bringing in my hotshot quants. So we have a five-step process. And, again, we have some really great people. So uh, Stacey, Um Stacy runs this 5,000 simulation model. Okay, And all it does is it looks at the level of interest rates, the level of spreads, you know, making loans to corporations, and then volatility, the forward volatility of the VIX versus today, right? It has a few other bells and whistles, but that's way too complicated for me. So those are the big three. And what she says is when that happens, what's the outcome? Historically, we're not making a forecast. We're saying given those levels, what has historically happened without doing all the macro stuff and so forth? Interesting, right? So... What, what she said in July 2021 is there was a 40% chance of a negative return in the bond market. Now, we didn't think it was going to be this bad, but we, 40% chance of a negative return. So that was your base case in July 2021 was a 40% chance of a negative return. Stacy's today, the number today, is a 50% chance of a 10% return. Okay? 180 degrees. So now you've got to shift your brain power again and say, okay, we've got to go there. So think about... When you're thinking about 2023, the quants are saying the setup here is pretty darn good. Rates have moved up a lot, you know, from the Fed. They're not doing QE, so there's a lot of things to like there. Spreads have moved up a lot, maybe not as high as they should be. And vols moved up a lot, too, although forward vol is on a decline. So something to like.
1: Yeah, and I would encourage everyone. Stacey actually did a webcast for us last Friday, and it was very good. So if you want to tune into Fidelity Connects and take a replay of that, she's very impressive. So.
2: Yeah, she's really, really amazing.
1: Great. Uh, before we get into your portfolios, uh, I think everyone's got questions about GICs. It's certainly a topic lately. You've got a very strong opinion on them, so maybe let's hear from you.
2: So, like, they compete with me, so I don't like them. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, it's even worse than that for me. Um, <laughs> if you're going to buy them because you just have a client who just can't take any ball, I get it. Yeah. Uh, but please keep them as short as you can. Here's, here's my problem with that, with the GICs, and this is – as an investor, right? And I think you're all in the same camp here when I say this. If you can put away money for five years that no one can touch for any reason because there's massive penalties on the way out, that's permanent capital. That's a great thing to do. That's what Canada Pension Plan does. That's what OMERS does. You should do that too. But I guarantee you, they don't put it in at 5%. If you're going to lock away money for five years and you can't touch it for any reason, (laughs) you want 20% from that. 30, whatever. That's good stuff. That's what Andrew's telling you. Go buy that stuff. And so what a lot of times we like about GICs is the accounting. They don't market to market. And it makes everybody feel better. Book value accounting. But you've locked away your bonds for five years for no good reason. And you're going to hear from David Wolf later today. He's an asset allocator and he gives me some money sometimes. I saw him last night for dinner and his only point to me is that when I give you money, just remember, I'm going to want it back at some point to buy stocks. So this is what we do in the bond market. We're the liquidity in the market. So if you're putting money away for five years in a GIC, I don't have a problem with locking money away for five years. That's permanent capital. Don't waste it in the bond market.
1: Great. So just thinking about your portfolios, it's a really challenging environment right now. You, you know, you've done very well in terms of adding alpha in the portfolio. Uh, I remember back when we developed multi-sector, it was about 2017, And it was a great product because it really gave you a lot of flexibility to express your views in the portfolio. So, you know, talk to us about the lineup that you manage and uh, how you're currently positioned. Right. So we kind of have
2: three flavors of risk. Okay. we have uh, a nice picture here uh, on the very far left. I think it's your left, too. I don't even know. Uh, You can see those two. Those are going to have the beta of the marketplace. So if you're as an investor say, I really want the beta of the bond market, these are the two that you know, the, that should be closest to the beta. They'll have the least amount of below investment grade. They'll have the most duration. And so they'll have the best diversification benefits versus the stock market. Okay. Those two um, that we see the next two multi-sector and global core plus, again, they're going to be a little bit more correlated to stocks. Not a lot, but they're going to be like 0.3, 0.4 correlated stocks. They're going to have more income, more carry, and they're going to have a little bit more volume beta. But over time, those, those two should outperform the first two because these take more opportunity. And so they go and get, grab it. And then, of course, in the very side, last slide is taxable credit. That's like saying, if you want us to take care of your high-yield loans, bank loans, you want to do it yourself, and you just want us to buy it and move between them, that's kind of what we're doing tactical credit. That has the highest correlation, to stocks. But again, it has a lower correlation than high-yield and bank loans and so forth. So you put it together. When I think about this lineup, the whole point of this lineup is – For you as an investor to decide, what are you trying to get done for your client? And the portfolio, though, in any one of these three right now is is very well set up. There's a lot to like about all of them, and there's an awful lot of income now versus the past. And, in fact, we've been saying, if you don't like bonds now, you just don't like bonds. That's fine. Like, this is as good a setup as we've seen in a long, long time.
1: Yeah, you did say that. You said if you don't like bonds, you're never going to like them.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: So thinking about how you're positioned, why don't I talk about a few asset classes? You tell me how you're feeling about them. Leverage loans, I know you really like leverage loans. Do you still like them?
2: Yeah. So the bank loan market is a below investment grade marketplace. It floats. So that's why everybody likes it, right? And so you heard Andrew talk about the yield curve. Maybe we'll just spend a second on that. The yield curve really is inverted a lot right now. And what's interesting about that as an investor, it means the positive carry trade for the first time in like 30 years is to have a barbell on, which is to say, buy cash, and then barbell over top of threes, fours, fives, and have cash sevens, cash tens. And that's kind of what we're doing right now. You should know that, okay? That's the, the carry trade. Historically, when the yield curve is positively sloped, the bullet carries better and you're paid to wait in the bullet. So you kind of got a, a little bit of a unique place to be today. What's nice about these portfolios is we can go buy a lot of floating rate notes, bank loans. And I think there's a sense, oh, the floating rate bank loan market, it's just going to be a default after default in that marketplace. You have to remember, these were crummy companies anyway. Like they were all paying six and seven and eight percent before. So they're still paying six, seven, eight, nine now, 10. And the nice thing about bank loans, and even high yield, right, is loss in default is lowest when it's an interest rate shock. If you get a hard recession like Andrew was talking about, That'll hurt. But if you're just calling for an interest rate reset shock, the nice thing is those companies still have all their revenue. They just can't afford all their debt. And so then it's a negotiation. Okay, can you pay six? Can you pay seven? Okay, can you give us seven and a warrant? You know, that kind of stuff. That's low loss and default. But for, for all of us, that's yield that you get to capture. So I'm not actually bent out of shape about the marketplace today unless you think we're going into a super hard landing. That gets back to the scenario. Remember DD ski slopes? If we're in the double diamond run, bond market will rally. When I said that treasuries, government risk off stuff, will. it could turn into the everything rally. Like everything comes with it because all of the people that were getting, paying higher interest rates now get, a, get out of your jail free card and they're safe, right? So this gets to how you play this tactically. But you know, the, all the portfolios are set up really well right now. I like a lot of what we've got in our inflation expectations, whether you're with Wolfie and they're flat to down, or if you're with Didi and you see that 1%, they look compelling enough that in most of these asset classes, even below investment grade, you're not going to have a sudden stop.
1: Great. We've got a couple questions coming in before we get to them. Uh, EMD.
2: Oh, my God. So emerging markets is always first or worst in your portfolio. Forget volatility. It's like, you still pick it. And the problem with EM, you know, EM's like the team that was picked last. So we picked the investment grade team, and we picked the high yield team, and we picked the equity team. And then when who was left over it was like the EM team. We just put them all together. And yet they, they, those have nothing to do with the So China will show up on the EM team. That's crazy. Korea shows up in the EM team. That's crazy. Dominican Republic shows up there. That's probably right. You know, You know, Brazil. So the problem with EM is not one thing. And so you don't have a stable beta, right? And if you don't have a stable beta, it's hard for you as an investor to use. And so what we do is we use our EM team at Fidelity and our great team, and we have a woman named Heather who helps us a lot with this, and we pick individual targeted EM positions. And so we like things. So one of the things we own now, and I can tell you, is Brazil. I think Brazil at 13% is a decent place to be. And, you know, Brazil... um, Uh, You know, you want to keep your size the right amount. And, you know, what our analyst Heather says, and I said this last time, is that at least there's some challenging review in Brazil so that the president won't do anything batshit.
1: (laughs) Okay, so a couple questions here. How crowded is the investment-grade trade at this point, and is the risk-reward still supportive of longer duration? So the
2: hard part is there's no crowded trade here for the government bonds, in my mind. The issue you have is what's your forward expectation for inflation? If you buy a 10-year bond, right, at 3.5%, that's where it is today in the U.S. And let's assume that you think real rates are going to be 1%. That's high, like Andrew was saying, and they'll go negative if you get a recession. But let's assume 1%. That means what you're being compensated for from my high school math is two and a half percent for every year in inflation. So even if you think inflation can be higher this year, but it will on average get back to two, then the bond market's in good shape. That's what you're trying to assess in the bond market today. So when you're thinking about adding term, whether it's Government of Canada bonds, Promise of Ontario, whatever your favorite story is, if you're adding term, you're trying to decide, okay, I got a real rate, I got some inflation. Do I think the inflation number the bond market has is reasonable? If it is, the bond market's all set. I would say to you, my personal view, this is a great setup.
1: Great. Uh, no surprise at the next question. When do you expect central banks to start cutting rates?
2: <laughs> uh, whenever, as soon as they possibly can. I think the Bank of Canada told you the other day that they're hoping like heck that they're on ski slopes and going down a lot more than green runs. They, the Bank of Canada doesn't want to raise rates anymore. They're going to talk tough, but behind there, they've got their fingers crossed, like, please roll over, because we, we don't want to have the pain of the reset shock that's going to happen to gain mortgages if we keep having to keep rates at this level. So I think central banks will move way faster than you think. I don't think you should assume that they are—they have some like long-term vision. They want to be stable. They want to be credible. But if we end up in the U.S. and we're in the ski slopes and we get disinflation in summer, like Aditi's, like not, not a guarantee, but if we get that, you think that the Federal Reserve is going to sit in his hands and go, oh, we're never we're cutting rates. You know, you think it, you'll be hauled up in front of Elizabeth Warren in the Senate so fast, it'll make your head spin.
1: <laughs> um, and actually, we were talking about this this morning. Can you comment on the U.S. debt ceiling?
2: Yeah, so here's the thing about debt ceiling. There's nothing you can do about it, so ignore it. It's happened every year since I. You can't diversify away from it, um, and that's your problem, right? And so, in, so we've had the debt ceiling since the 1960s. In one way, the debt ceiling is something you like as investors. Why? Because the debt ceiling, the fact that it's back in it's really – in vogue right now, is really a representation that the House is Republican, the Senate and the President are Democrats, and they're going to have to duke it out to spend money. That's kind of a good thing, because if we look at all the fiscal largesse that we've just had in the U.S., multiple percents of GDP, 10 and 20 percent of deficits of GDP, even though we have all-time low unemployment, the debt ceiling leads to that combat. Here's the other thing. If you think you know, okay, I'm gonna diversify away and I'm just gonna buy a whole bunch of corporate bonds because they won't default to me, but the U.S. government might. In 2011, thought the same thing. President Obama had the big debt ceiling thing going on. Interest rates fell by 100 basis points. Corporate bonds sold off and risk assets got trashed. Here's the problem we have. Our whole society is gerrymandered right now. Everything is off the reference rate of risk-free, whether it's the government of Canada, in Canada, or the U.S. government, right? We set all the bank capital. Basically, what do they own? What is bank capital? It's government Canada bonds or U.S. Treasuries. The regulators, insurance companies, everyone in this system, and, and the banks are levered 100% of GDP, right? So they matter. The problem you have is that there's nowhere to go, and so I wouldn't do it. You have to talk your friends off the ledge. It's going to give us all anxiety. Try not to be a closet. That ceiling. Just assume that they'll figure out a way to get it done. I think they will. Um, But again, it's it's not going to be pleasant, but there's nowhere to go. And my instinct, if you try to go somewhere, you will hurt your long-term investing, and that'll just be even more upsetting.
1: So interesting question, and I usually know your answer to this, but I think it's changed a little bit. Do you recommend clients buy currency neutral or unhedged funds and specific to fixed income?
2: So it's very interesting. So I still am currency neutral. I want to step back a second. This is the anti-08, okay? I want to make this really clear. This is the anti-08 for U.S. If you think there's another crisis just around the corner in the U.S., I don't don't agree with you. And why is that? If you think about the crisis in 08, it really comes out of two things. From 04 to 06, Greenspan raised rates, 350 basis points, broke the housing market. In the U.S. at the time, though, 40% of the housing market was subprime so not prime, and floating rate, arms, right? And so the resets took them down, but then they were really bad loans. And those loans are, had been all packaged up, and they polluted the banking system of the USA and around the world, actually, but really the U.S., and we had a banking crisis. That's '08. in a nutshell. I was there. Now, fast forward to today, 99% of U.S. mortgages are conforming and fixed rate, okay? Conforming means they're hard to beat. So, under the guise of never let a good crisis go to waste, the US government didn't have to wait and they changed a lot of things, including the housing market. Now, just think about this for like a thought process. All my traders in Florida are so proud of themselves, they all have mortgages at two and five eighths for 30 years. So, you know what they're able to do now? Instead of paying down their mortgage, they're able to go buy government bonds for a positive carry and defease their mortgage. That's an equity injection. So for the U.S., if you think that, and then the banks in the U.S. have the stress test, they all pass them. If you think there's no stress in the U.S. right now, there's not, none, because they don't have any reset risk. What you should be aware of, though, is it's rest of the world this time around that has the reset risk at the Boris level. Canadians and on arms, Netherlands, the Germans, the Swedes, the Brits, and so... Rest of the world will have the most reset risk. And for the most people, all it is is a big pain in the rear, and you're going to choose to eat out once a month less. For some people, it will be devastating. So for the U.S., this is anti-08.
1: Great. Time has gone by really quickly, but I wanted to ask you any parting thoughts for the audience.
2: Uh, you know, I, I, I was saying in the currency neutral and the currencies, like, you know, my, my personal view here is the U.S. is in great shape even with the debt ceiling piece. And and the U.S. dollar is is still hard to beat. I'm still a fortress North America, you know, investor. That's still the way. Just because, Ken, U.S. are growing faster than the rest of the world. And don't forget demographics, because I've said it a million times, people. It is the destiny. And China, even the, uh, the World Bank is now saying China's population fell by a million people last year. It falls by 30 million a year, starting in 2028 for the rest of time. By 2050, China's lost more people than the U.S. has, okay? When you think of GDP growth, as number of workers times the output per person from first year at school. The number of workers going down. Good luck and good GDP.
1: Jeff, it's always great to hear from you. Lots of fun. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll pass it
2: Thank you, Cal.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.